Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation witch. I was laying there, practically I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were rolling back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, is there evidence of human sacrifice? Now, what's around there? Yes, we found a man with his fingers like a somewhere that implants are real. I don't know where I got that information from, but uh, <laughs> I, I think I heard it somewhere. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Welcome, guys, to Conspire Normal. It's your host, Adam Sane. Because Luke and Luke. That's right. Miss, otherwise known as Turbo Slut. <laughs> and we have the uh, the podcast Jesus himself, the the savior of the show, Mr. Mr. Robbie Lenz. In the house. In the house. And on the line, also, we have a... Uh, guest that we're going to do about 30 minutes with a, I like to call him our European correspondent, Mr. Stephen Ogden. Stephen, welcome hey, back to day. the show. 
I know it's like one o'clock in the morning for you again over there. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks once again for staying up for us. Uh, so no we are going to talk about some incidents that occurred in Germany. It seems like everything's occurring in Germany lately. But we ha- before we bring you on, we do have a clip that we want to play. So go ahead and play that for us, Rob. The news of what happened in the city of Cologne on New Year's Eve has electrified Germany and sent shockwaves through society after police said around a thousand drunken young men went on a rampage of robbery and sexual violence against women. Police say the men appeared to be organised and they had received 90 complaints of theft or sexual harassment in and around the train station and cathedral, packed on the night with thousands of revellers. I was touched from behind my back and I was touched under my skirt and my buttocks were touched. I tried to defend myself, swinging my arm backwards, and I almost fell down the stairs. There were so many people there, you couldn't do anything. One woman said she was raped. Cologne police say they are familiar with a group that steals around the station and with pickpockets who work the crowds. But New Year's Eve was different. What we know is that offences took place and were perpetrated out of a group of men aged 18 to 35 who looked as though they were of Arab or North African origin. That was seized on far away in America where Donald Trump blamed migrants for the outrage before any statement from German police. During these investigations, it will become clear which circle of perpetrators is involved, making this an issue through oversimplifications and connecting it to the issue of refugees is nothing more than misuse of the debate. Now it is about determining the facts and drawing the necessary conclusions. Witnesses claimed they saw groups attacking women, some of them insisting the men were foreign-looking. But Cologne's mayor said there was no reason to believe they were refugees. There are fears Cologne's five-day carnival next month could provide another opportunity for similar attacks to take place. Okay, so what you just heard, that was a clip from the shortest clip that I could find on it off of YouTube. And that was a clip about the attempted rapes and the rapes that occurred in Cologne, Germany on New Year's Eve uh, just a few weeks, just about a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Stephen, we wanted to br- you wanted to talk about this tonight. Uh, you had contacted me about it, so I did a little more research on it. Uh, d- did you get to hear that? Uh, and I know I had sent it to you earlier so that you could hear it because I wasn't sure that you could hear it. Uh, what were your thoughts about that little news piece? Yeah, I actually heard it just fine though, so it worked, and I Excellent. heard it before, obviously. And I made a few notes on what has been stated in that video and what's actually happened since then. So in that video is now already almost a week old. Um, they said we've got 90 allegations or whatever. It's now over 500. Wow. Just just the alone. They also happened, wait, I've got a picture up. They happened in Hamburg, Berlin, Bielefeld, Dusseldorf, Frankfurt, Stuttgart, Salzburg, and in in Switzerland as well. So not just in Cologne, but all no, over, no. all over Germany. In other yeah. words, and, th- and that's just the big uh, big areas where it happened. I know people that were places, and it happened there as well. Now. This is interesting that this is happening in Germany. Uh, Germany was the, probably the most welcoming country to the refugees. 
<laughs> as we talked about last in November, we talked about the situation and what's going on down there from your point of view. And of course, uh, yeah. the chancellor, Angela Merkel, she had said that the refugees were welcome in Germany. And now it seems that you've got some serious social chaos going on there. Well, of course. I mean, we're liberal in Germany, right? I mean, it's Let's just say in America, if you're on live or whatever, you can't swear anything. In Germany, that doesn't matter. We're liberal as hell. Right. right? And if you get over a million migrants, most of them out of North Africa or the Middle East, into a liberal place where, where girls wear skirts and, uh, and skirt uh, to dance or whatever, things will happen we have over a million migrants this year alone. And for next year, the reporting, we might have three million more. Jeez. Mm. Three million. Just imagine three million. Can you imagine that? Uh, that's crazy. That's a, that's a ton of people. Yeah. I mean, the Minister for Justice, Heiko Maas of the SPD, and they're basically the Social Democrats of Germany, that's what SPD stands for. Right. He said they, um, that these attacks were organized, as was stated in the clip before, and they actually found notes in um, like the refugee homes stating, go out, speak to women and stuff. They even had instructions on those notes saying, I like your breasts, I want sex, please do this and that to me. In German, how to say it, and have the Arabic language translation right next to it. <laughs> Are these like typed written notes or something? Yeah, yeah. So it's like there's out. a that would that would that would preclude that there would be like some preparation involved here. Well, I just need to look at Weil am Rhein. It's called the town is called Weil am Rhein, mm-hmm. and there we had a situation where two girls were raped on New Year's Eve. One was, I think she was 13, the other was like uh, a year older, or 14. They knew a guy that went out to, uh, and went out after New Year's. Like, number one, they shouldn't be out really at that time, but that's a different story, you know, in the middle of the night with little girls. But they were then raped by four migrants. Well, one is uh, now, uh, he's allowed to live here, but he was a migrant before. And three friends who are still in the process of being um, integrated, basically. One of them is from Switzerland. The other two are from the, are, are like from Holland. Now, how do you get four people raping two German girls in Weil am Rhein in the middle of Germany that are from the Netherlands and from Switzerland? Okay. Obviously, it has to be organized, and that's what Heiko Master said, that it's organized because it was organized all over. Right. It's not just a – I mean, you could kind of think that, you know, a lot – as we've said before, a lot of the migrants are males or, or young men. Yeah, and 90%. that they have probably a, a little bit sex-starved by this point. So, But th- this brings kind of a new dimension to this. It's not it just does. a random, it's no, not just no. a random by chance thing that it this happened all over. It was huh. an attack on what we are. That's the, that's why everyone's riled up. Yeah, my girlfriend doesn't. She doesn't go out anymore after nine o'clock in the evening. She doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't feel safe. I have to go with her, and if she does go out in the day, she's got like, like a spray. You know what I mean? Like a defense spray. Yeah, mace. Right. Yeah. yeah, mace. That's a shame that nobody can carry, conceal carry a small gun. 
oh, oh, I wish we could. We could have. Oh, God, I can just imagine. <laughs> I can just imagine straight justice. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I mean, it sounds horrid to say that. I know. You know, you don't wish death on anyone, really. But when they rape your women yeah. and your kids, the line is drawn. Right. Well, it's pretty damn extreme, right? I mean, that's 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 the most extreme that you could possibly get, except for maybe murder. Well, a girl actually died. Uh, I think she was 19 in Frankfurt, actually died after being raped by six guys. Was this the same night? On same Eastern? night. Wow. The same night. So what we're getting here is kind of that this is happening, if we're getting it at all, that this is happening in Cologne and that this happened in Cologne only. But like no, you're saying, it it's all across no. the country. Now, I loved that uh, that that news clip there because they were talking about. I love how they brought Donald Trump into it, and I'm not a Donald Trump fan, but <laughs> that really had nothing to do with anything. It, <laughs> it really had nothing to do. Well, it, 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 for me, it kind of showed uh, like Germany's maybe like resentment toward him for you know you know that's what, <laughs> yeah maybe. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, 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 they just they just talked about it like it was. Uh, they they said like, well, he said something before the police. The police reports were even filed. Like he just assumed that it was that it was North Africans or Arabs or Muslims, you know, and the little oh. snide remark. And then later on in the report, they say it was North Africans and Arabs. <laughs> it, it just helps his campaign, you know. I, I well, guess. Adam and everyone else is there, and everyone listening, you need to understand one thing. Police reports said, we don't know well, who it is. And they reported that first, right? And that's what was reported. We don't know who it is. Don't connect us to migrants or your Nazi, basically. Things yeah. like that. Now, the police minister of Nordrhein-Westphalia, where that happened, had to resign because he told the police to not report if migrants are committing crimes. And the only reason that all of these rapes have now made it into the open spotlight is because these women went on, on the internet, on Facebook, and said, I was raped. And then another girl said, yeah, I was raped too. And then they all got together in these groups on Facebook, all speaking about, obviously in very embarrassed, how they were touched. I read a post and spoke with one girl, she's 18. She said, I could feel them in all my body openings. Jesus. Right? And these reports were kept hush-hush until police, who spoke anonymously in German like the TV, not in the state like the TV, because all oh, we've got um, the VDR and stuff like that, and that's just the West German um, radio or the TV or whatever, and it's state-funded. The people, the, the, the other channels that I, and I do like, you know, like the normal channels that are not state-run, they reported it. The others didn't until they had to. So the police chief had to go and a policeman said, well, they, they say in the news that we haven't arrested anyone. Before that even really got uh, going on um, New Year's Eve, we already arrested 18 people and 18 of them were all immigrants. Right. And that's what they said. And the police report also stated, wait, I'll just scroll down, I've got it here, just to, you know, be correct. Sure. They stood before the police, the migrants, after they were being arrested, and ripped apart or burned the BAMF letters. And BAMF is Bundesamt für Migration und Einwanderung, which basically means they 
do migrants. They are the state thing that does migrants. You know what I mean? This is an organization. Say that. An organization of the state that says, right, you're a migrant. What's your name? They register them. You're going to live here or the... They ripped apart the like little notes that they have to say that yes, you are like registered in Germany as a migrant. Gotcha. They ripped okay. them apart and some said to police, right? Tomorrow I'm going to go back to Banff and get a new one under a different name. And this is happening. And this is happening all over. Of course, this is, it happened all over. And one person, oh, he was the best migrant of all. He said, "I'm from Syria." Angela Merkel invited me. You need to be nice to me. Yeah, I heard about this. Yeah, yeah exactly. And like the guy that uh, that went into France, into the police station on the anniversary of Hebdo, right? He actually lived in Germany. He was a German migrant from Recklinghausen. And he, they're now going back through it all, you know, all of his like life. He wasn't registered under eight names in eight different places over the last three years. He lived in Greece, in Switzerland, in Sweden, in Norway, in Denmark, in France, in Holland, and now in, he lived in Germany. Always under a different name. Always the same mugshot, always the same fingerprint, but always a different name. Same guy, different name. Uh, let me ask you about uh, what you think about the mayor of Cologne has come out, This the little advice that... Uh, that yeah. girls need yeah. to go out in groups and yeah. stay an arm link, arm's length from men. And then yeah. also what's been the, what's been the reaction over there? What kind of protests have been happening? Well, there was a giant protest the, uh, yesterday, actually. And the funny thing that happened at that process, and just to swivel off for a second, reporters were filmed, actual reporters were filmed throwing fireworks at the demonstration and at the police resulting in a clash between the police and the demonstrators. Even Reporters though filmed, were filmed throwing fireworks at the protesters? Exactly. Exactly. Bizarre. Hmm. And the film crew said, the Nazis, it's all right to do so. Really? Yeah, that's what's been said. So if you disagree with the... Uh, Migrants or the Arab people out there raping women, and you you're disagree Nazi, with that, yeah. you're automatically a Nazi in Germany. Exactly. Hmm. The, honestly, the amount of times I get called a Nazi each day, even though I'm not actually really German, I just live here. I'm also like a migrant, you know, I'm British. I lived in Australia for a while, I now live back in Germany. I've also migrated over the planet. Right. Sure. You've lived all but over, I sir. I'm yep. raping women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm no Nazi. My great-granddad fought the Nazis. And my other great-granddad was in the German army, you know what I mean? Because I'm half German. So I'm not a Nazi, you know what I mean? I just, I'm defending my home. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's an awfully uh, hard name to castigate to somebody, call them a Nazi. Especially in Germany. Right. Right. That's like the worst thing you can say to a person over here. Right. Uh, what about the mayor in Cologne? This this kind of oh, yeah. like just just yeah 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 let me, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, it, it's it's decent advice, I suppose. But is that really <laughs> the the reaction that you need to have? It's decent advice. I stood I stood beside my girlfriend, and I'm like, all right, you need to face me now. She put her arm 
in front of her and I had my arm on her shoulder because my arm's longer. And I said, well, an arm's distant. That really makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah. What has, what has occurred in your, in your town? Well, in my town, not a lot has happened, but we're going to get 500 more migrants here next week. 500 more. So how many live there now? We already have 850. Wow. I can't and we're a town of nine and a half thousand. Yeah, that's not a lot of people. Yeah, and you know where they're staying? They're staying in the best place of all. We've got a hospital here, and this region of Germany is known because, like, we've got a lot of, like, the churches and the, um, the, and all of that kind of stuff, religious stuff over here in my region and ancient stuff as well. They're staying in a nun's home, and the... The nuns that live there, the 30 nuns that live there in this home, that do like the curve for disabled people and the people that are about to die. You know what I mean? They do like death curve. Sure. And um, they had to move out, and they're going to move in the migrant into the nun's home. Hmm. It's like, so they're moving into a convent, basically. Basically, doing. yeah. yeah. They've... They're moving into, into the, yeah, and they had to move out. The nuns had to move out, had to leave. You, you know, I, I've been watching, it, we don't get a lot of this over here, as I think I've told you before, Stephen. You know, a lot of this stuff doesn't really come to us in the United States. We may hear a blurb about it here or there. We may hear it from some kind of alternative news source, like, say, Russia Today or something like that. I, I <laughs> yeah, saw that the they Russians. were reporting on it. Like- <laughs> yeah. So... You know, we don't, we don't get a lot, we don't get a lot of this with the situation, but I have seen a couple of things like, uh, I've watched, um, vice, you know, HBO has vice, uh, the, the TV show, and, uh, but they were talking about France and France is essentially in a state of what I would term a social chaos. I mean, you have this, uh, what is it? Le Pen, who is the, uh, the leader of the kind of like the far right parties, and you have yeah. just this kind of runaway Islamic fundamental, fundamentalism as well. I mean, yeah. would you deem that Germany is in the same situation now, especially after these events? Oh, we are now. It's now the 11th of January, at least where I am. It's the right. 10th where you are. And in the last 11 days, more gun licenses have been requested than in the last three months and together. People are getting scared. People are, my girlfriend won't go out anymore at night, mate. She won't. Also that you guys can accommodate some some unwanted uh, refugees. <laughs> Adam and I are getting disgruntled because, or all three of us probably, because uh, our city is becoming so so much bigger and so many people coming here. <laughs> yeah, but we don't have problems like this. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a whole if different. If you have problems like that, they will be shot on the spot and too right. Mm-hmm. The, the, these people that are coming here are coming here to work. They're coming here for jobs that are already available. I mean, you yeah. got a situation in, in Germany, a situation yeah. in France, Europe as a whole, where these people yeah. are not being, they're not being given jobs and they're not being assimilated into society. And well, ha- they're flooding Adam, into the United in, into the European Union. Yeah. Adam, the thing is, right, if you get, let's say, a thousand migrants or... 8,000 or any number, any small number, you can integrate them because they can be spread about the country and they can be integrated, they can learn German. But if you get over a million, um, try to imagine 
you get a million Spanish into America and they all need to learn English now in order to work. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the Spanish, the Christian, they know that, that, that girls like to wear skirts and they like to drink, right? The Spanish, the fun. It's okay to integrate them because they will not go around. They're always idiots. Let's just say it like that. It's just with guns. There's always an idiot that will take a gun to shoot innocent people. But most of the time, guns are used and to protect innocent people. And that's what, the thing that no one really understands. It's like, obviously, you have idiots in every group, right? <laughs> but not all of them are. But the thing that we have over here now, imagine if you grow up in a region of the world where there's only war, all the women were workers, you can't even see the legs or whatever, or the faces for that matter, and then you come to Germany where it's we're yeah. going to dr where we're drinking on the streets, having parties and undressing, because that's how we are. Right. You, you see know, a girl in a miniskirt and you just go nuts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, they've not seen anything like that before. They see them and they're instantly like, you know what I mean? The seams on the pants are bloody exploding. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this show is getting a little adult here. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about Denmark and Sweden. You uh, you gave me a bullet point uh, for something yeah. you want to talk about. Denmark and Sweden have apparently closed their borders. Oh, they have. They are have, they not taking any more migrants now? Oh, no, they're not. They've closed the borders completely. They're throwing the EU out the door, basically, the agreement of Schengen, saying, nope, we're going to control every person that's on our borders. And even if they go from Denmark to Sweden every day to work, they will get checked. It doesn't matter who you are, you will get checked. And if you do not have the right papers, or if you are a migrant, you will go back. Yeah, because there's been a lot, like, again, the social chaos thing. Sweden yeah. especially has had a lot of this, uh, and a lot of it's been a backlash against the uh, against the migrants. You've yeah. had a lot of mosque burnings there and a lot, yeah. of, and a lot of violence. And yeah. it's probably all the black metal guys doing that in Sweden, right? Mm, like, right on. <laughs> and... and yeah, so you've had a lot of violence, so I could see that they probably have just decided that they're gonna they're gonna close it down. Yeah, well, the thing is, Adam, I always like to use this example when I hear things like this. You know, the Reichstag, Hitler burned it down, and he said the left did it, the communists did it. He burned it down himself. Now imagine you're in Sweden or in Germany, and you're a migrant. He doesn't have a lot of money, and he's unhappy. He, well, he just isn't happy. He doesn't have a nice bed or a car. And then you burn down your own mosque. And you say, oh, the bad riot, they burned down our mosque. We want a new mosque, a bigger mosque. And they will get it. You think that's what's going on, Stephen? You think, think they're burning it I down? I don't think that is, that is going on in every case. But it is going on in a lot of cases. I mean, you know, I would say a little less than half, I would say. Because last year when we had the case in Berlin where a black person out of Africa was shot on the street. And everyone was going, oh, the Nazis, they shot the black guy. Like, he was shot because he was black and he's a migrant, he can't speak German. He was shot by Nazis. Weeks and weeks of it, until they found out he was shot by a fellow, um, like, migrant, and they were having a drug deal that went wrong, and that's why he got shot. And then all of a sudden they said, well, it's all... 
you know, not all migrants are like that. He didn't even say, well, we call everyone a Nazi, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. But, you know, why do we need to say sorry? Right. You, yeah. you know, we actually had this uh, happen here. Uh, there was a mosque burning. I can't remember where it was, uh, but apparently uh, the one of the guys that went to the mosque, one of the Muslim guys, burned the mosque down himself to blame it on hate groups or white people or whatever. This actually yeah. happened here in the United States. So well, if for it, what it's yeah, worth, if, that, that did happen here. Yeah. The thing, and the thing is over here, it's always all hush-hush. Oh, the police are ordered and to not report anything. The police have to sit in interviews with black down faces. The voices, the voices change in order to speak because they feel that afraid. What do you think that, why do you think that is? Do you think that it is this, this, this political correctness, this emphasis on multiculturalism yeah, is, it, it, is that it, it, what's going on? Is that what's keeping them from saying it like it is that, hey, you know, we've got this in our society. These are criminals. We need to do something about it and done. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing is, you need to understand, right? We're Germans. We love our order. You know, we love things to be how we like them to be organized. And yeah. when the government says you do this and that, especially if you work in the state, because then you are Beamter. And that means basically that you are a person of the state, an actual officer. And it's very hard to get that, right? And it has a lot of perks. And people don't want to lose that. And if the, imagine, imagine you're Merkel, right? Imagine you're Chancellor of Germany, Adam Sane, and you say, <laughs> right? Let's bring in all the migrants. Let's get in, let's get in a million. Let's get them in. You know, just in. It doesn't matter how or if it will work in the long run. Just get them in. And suddenly, oh, damn, we've got 500 rapes. Um, we need to protect our ass. Don't you dare report anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's everyone is trying not to be the, um, the bad guy. Everyone is trying not to be the person where German people just go, it is your fault and you need to pay. Go to jail, go to the desert and just lay on the ground and stay there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think because there's a sympathy for the people that have been through this civil war in Syria and so they want to bring them in. And like I've stated before on this show, uh, I, it blows my mind that these neighboring countries – uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, all these countries yeah. would not take these people. But instead, it's not. all been kind of sloughed off onto the European Union. And, and before we say anything else, you know, like the, the it's not just Syrians. I mean, it's Libyans. Of course not. Only a small percentile of them are Syrians. Eritreans, people that are just like fleeing the, the oppressive government there. And so it's not just it's not just those people, the people from Iraq, people from Afghanistan, from all yeah. these kind of like war torn areas. Yeah. Stephen, I want to get your idea about American politics and <laughs> American where you think politics, that uh, like your your view on it. Like you, we were talking a little bit over Facebook about uh, well, Obama, you know, crying his eyes out the other day when he did the like gun control baby. thing. Yeah. And then we also, you also had some kind of viewpoint on the uh, the Oregon militia standoff 
which yeah. I think is kind of a joke now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so what do yeah, you think about well, American politics? Where do you think it's going for us over here? American politics. We're going to end up the same as Europe here pretty soon. Well, if you don't get Obama, you're going to end up worse because he's going to try to take your guns and there's going to be a guy on every block who says, I will not surrender my guns and then you're going to have a civil war. That's what I think. Yeah. I don't know if that it's quite as bad as that, but... Well, the thing is, you have... might have a different opinion reason. on that. You have guns for one reason, right? The founding fathers of America, we learned this in school, actually, um, they, they said, you, the people need to be armed and to defend the country from outside and from the government itself. Right. That's, that's the thing yep. that a lot that of people forget. That is why you have guns. You don't have guns to make like videos on YouTube where the people are like with machine guns in both hands. You know, it's not the point. The point of having firearms and defending yourself is to maintain a free and organized society based on the American Latin Constitution that was laid down by the founding fathers. And the thing that you have going on now is half of Americans are on drugs because they're depressed they don't, and they're not happy. And obviously, if you drug up a hundred and like over 100 million people, some people are going to go nuts. And when these pills have on the back written, may cause uh, distress, may cause anger fits and stuff like that, and then they can get a gun, obviously, they're going to go mad. But the thing is, if you didn't have guns in any place, I've, I've seen so many videos online where people have tried to rob like a bank or a store and there's this like little old grandpa in the corner. He gets his revolver and he shoots the robbers and that's the end of the story. Right. You know, you have your guns and to defend yourselves from the government. And when the government tries to take away your guns, you need to defend yourselves. And I'm not American and I think that way. <laughs> and a lot of Americans think even more extreme, at least, and that's what we get over here. What were you going to say, Rob? Uh, well, I was just going to say that there there might not be open revolution in the streets everywhere, but there definitely will be some ugly zones and a lot of craziness that goes down. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it won't yeah. be an easy yeah. thing. And Obviously, it's not going to be like a second world war and where every man's in the, in the, in the battle, you know what I mean? But um, the, the American Latin revolution was started by how many percent? Three or four percent of the people uh, of the people in America at that time. Yeah, it wasn't very many I mean, people. You don't need a lot of people to start a big movement. Look at Hitler. He started with himself and a hundred people. Yep, it's true. You know what I mean? All, all of my friends and family own a gun. Every single one of them. So <laughs> I mean, this is Tennessee, boy. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's guns on every street corner. <laughs> You know what? If there's a if there's a gun on every street, well, on every street, defending freedom and defending innocent people, I would love guns on every street corner. I'm going to tell you, I, I'm not a big gun guy. I'm not a gun enthusiast, but I am someone that lately has been looks at the Constitution and sees that you have these basic freedoms. And one of those freedoms in the Bill of Rights, Second Amendment, is the right to bear arms. And actually, I really don't care what those arms are. I don't care if they're muskets and I don't care if they're AR-15s. You can bear those. You can bear those arms because the point of that is defend yourself against the government. And by the way, our Bill of Rights is not that we were granted those rights by the government. We were riding the 
the Bill of Rights because those were rights that were granted to us, well, for lack of a better term, granted to us by God. And that's, yeah, that's, that's the truth. Right? Yeah. I mean, those those are fundamental rights. And it's there with the, with the right to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, it, it, and freedom to not bear to uh, not incriminate yourself, freedom yeah. to not quarter troops or you know, any of that stuff. I think glory, glory, hallelujah needs to be playing in the background while you're saying. Yeah, that. I think so too. <laughs> we, we can do that. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> we <Play> can. <laughs> and, and, and you know, Stephen, it, it's just it, to me, it, it is fundamental, and I, and I I look at things like. Well, I mean, you know, Obama crying the other day. That I'm sorry. That was so. That was so fake. I laughed for five minutes. To be honest, I laughed, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh God, America, yeah. what has happened to you?" Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous, man. Yeah. But but this org, this this standoff in Oregon. I don't know really what you think about that, but uh, you know that's that's interesting in and of itself. And I might talk about that later on in the show. But uh, yeah. we're kind of running out of time, Stephen. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. And, and yeah. talking to us about it, uh, about all this that's going on. And I know that you're going to be going into the army pretty soon and congr- congratulations on that. And I hope that you yeah. can come back periodically and kind of fill us in on what's going on over there. Yeah, I will do. If you would like, um, you know, I'll make some time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for the insight. Yeah. Well guys, we're going to finish out this segment. Uh, we're going to bring in the, our main guest, uh, Dan Gordon, we're going to talk about his book, Day of the Dead, uh, Gaza. And we're going to talk about what's going on in Israel, Palestine, and in that area. So it should be an interesting kind of like we're going to get to some more politics. Uh, stay on the line for us, Stephen. Uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, guys, we're back on Conspiranormal. We're back. We took a little break, but uh, for everybody, it just took one second. It's like time travel or magic. something. It's magic, the magic of editing. <laughs> and on the line, uh, we have Mr. Dan Gordon. Uh, I had heard of Dan from L.A. Marzulli. Him and uh, Marzulli are good friends. And we had, uh, I wanted to get Dan on to talk about his book, Gaza, the the Day of the Dead, and we're not talking about zombies here. We're talking about a book that he wrote about the situation in Gaza, a mosque could control Gaza and in Israel. And I kind of want to go over Dan, if you don't mind, because this is kind of like a uh, well, sort of a first for us to have someone that has so many credits to their name here. Uh, you started out with uh, as a screenwriter in Hollywood yeah. uh, with the movie tank, which James Garner, which I've never seen, but I've heard of. Uh, and, and Jim was, uh, Jim was like a, a big brother to me. And unfortunately we just lost him within the last year also. And, uh, but yeah, it was a great movie to do. And, and, uh, he became a real mentor to me. Absolutely. Uh, passenger 57. Yeah. That is, uh, with Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes should have an altar built to me somewhere in his house because prior to Passenger 57, he was actually a serious dramatic actor. And after Passenger 57, he became a major action star. So I'm, I'm hoping and assuming that there's a statue of me somewhere in his house because I was the guy who kept pushing for him to be cast. Awesome. awesome. 
Awesome. Awesome. I'm kind of hearing myself there a little bit. Uh, and also Wyatt Earp with uh, Kevin Costner. Yes. It yeah. is, uh, Wikipedia says you were executive producer on that as well. I was uh, screenwriter and executive producer, yeah. Murder in the First. That's another movie. that Murder in the First with Kevin Bacon, Chris Slater, and uh, Gary Oldman. And I think uh, Kev- Kevin Bacon, I think, would tell you that's the best work of his life. He was absolutely extraordinary in that movie. He was amazing. And we were just a movie we were just talking about, The Hurricane, with yep. uh, Denzel Washington. Yes. And yep. The Celestine Prophecy that came out in 2006. So, sir, you have a ton of movies under your belt here. A ton of... Uh, yeah, about 15 Hollywood features and about two or 300 hours of television and um, seven or eight published novels and five plays that have been on Broadway in the West End of London. So I've had a decent run. Right. And one of those plays was Arena's Vow, yes. which, I, which starred uh, Tova Feldshow, who uh, currently is on The Walking Dead. Right. And, and we're just in the process of uh, turning Arena's Vow into a motion picture, which I'll be directing. So that's uh, oh, wow. that's, that's going to be and we'll, we'll have some, I think, exciting news about casting on that within the next uh, month or two. And I'm working with a wonderful producer named Michael O'Hoven who uh, was the producer of Capote um, that starred Philip Seymour Hoffman, who won the Academy Award for that. So I'm in, um, in very good company with, uh, with Michael O'Hoven, who's a dream producer. Couldn't ask for a better guy to work with. Uh, that's, uh, that's excellent. What, what is Arena's Vow about, just to go over that a little bit? Because I think it has something to do with what we're going to talk about tonight. Irena's Vow is actually a true story uh, about a woman whose name was Irena Gut Updike. And when she was a uh, a 19-year-old during the Holocaust, she was a 19-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, drop-dead gorgeous Polish Catholic girl who had trained to be a nurse. Uh, When the war began, the Soviets invaded from the east and the Nazis invaded from the west. There was a treaty between Stalin and Hitler to divide up Poland. She was in the East. She was um, a nurse there. She was gang-raped and beaten and left for dead by nine Russian soldiers. She made it back to her village. She had no identification on her. And uh, by sundown, she was a Polish forced laborer. And she wound up um, working for a German major who was in his 60s, who was like the town major of this uh, uh, of this little uh, town, and part of her duties uh, brought her into contact with 12 Jewish laundry workers. Um, and one day she overheard the head of the Gestapo telling her major that if he wanted to run his laundry properly, he should get rid of the Jews as workers and get Poles like uh, herself, because within two weeks there wouldn't be a Jew left alive in that area. They were going to liquidate the, the uh, ghetto. And she ran and told her friends, you've got to hide because they're going to kill all of you. And they said, you know, you're such a baby, Irene. If we had a place to hide, we'd be hiding there. And um, she wound up hiding 12 Jews in the basement of a German major without his knowledge for two years. When he found out that they were down there, he only found out that two of them were down there. He didn't really realize he had 12, 10 more. She became his mistress 
in order to save them. And she saved all 12 of them. And um, it's an extraordinary story of faith and unbelievable courage. And as a Holocaust-themed movie, it's also unbelievably funny because as Irena said, if it wasn't for the fact that they could have been killed at any moment, they would have been laughing the whole time because it was like a French farce. I mean, um, when just to give you an example, she hid the Jews in the basement. The major told her to clean the uh, villa top to bottom. So she told the um, soldiers, my major said clean from top to bottom, so you start in the attic. And she had the Jews in the cellar, and there were two staircases in the house. And so when the Nazis went down the staircase, she took the Jews up the other staircase <laughs> into the attic. Um, Interesting. And, and that was sort of typical of the, the near misses that they had. Um, it, it's one of the most extraordinary stories I know. Uh, she, Irena became very, very dear to me, uh, was like a second mother to me. And um, it's a very personal story because uh, I loved her dearly for the last 10 years of her life. And uh, uh, it, she always said to me, she spent the last 20 years of her life telling high school children. And she would say, you, she would reverse it on them. She wouldn't say, I'm the last generation. She would say, you are the last generation that will hear from a living witness. She would put the responsibility on them. And she would always say to me, Honya, who will tell the children when I am gone? And I said, I promise you that you will. We'll do this as a play, and then we'll do this as a movie. And uh, we did it as a play on Broadway, as you say, with Tova Feldsha, who did a wonderful job. And we'll be doing it now as a, as a movie with uh, Michael O'Hoven producing. I would think that would be quite a privilege to meet someone that lived through those times and especially someone that did what they did of, of saving people's lives. I mean, that has got to be something that uh, for, for you had to be just amazing to, to talk to and somebody she, like that. Well, she was so modest also. She, you know, for her, it was, she was deeply religious and for her, it was simply, um, the, the, the acting out of her deep religious faith. And she said, if it had been up to me, we, I would never have done it. But she said, I, I gave it up to God and, and just went where he led. And, uh, you know, you, you, regardless of your religious affiliation, when you see the near misses they had and the miracle of their survival, uh, you have to say, She's right, you know. Right. I, I want to ask you, Dan, because not only are you a screenwriter in Hollywood and you've been a producer, but you have this other, I would say, another life as a um, a captain in the Israeli Defense Force. And right. I kind of like to know what's your history with them and what is the kind of like the operations that you were involved in over there? Um, sure. I ran away from home when I was 16. Uh, I wound up on a kibbutz in Israel, went to high school there, came back to go to university in the United States, finished university, came back to Israel, uh, was drafted into the Israeli army in 1973 in time for the Yom Kippur War. Really? Uh, so I've served in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Um, 
I went into an armored infantry unit in reserves and became a sniper in 1978, I believe, 77 or 78. It's a long time ago. And was a sniper from either 77 or 78 until 1980. Uh, and then um, came back to the United States, worked as a screenwriter, but I would go back and do reserves every year. Uh, I missed the first Lebanon war uh, because I was married, had small children, and, uh, and, and didn't feel that... Um, uh, that I could do that to my kids. I mean, I didn't live in Israel. I was living in the United States. I knew there were a lot of guys who could do what I did. And if anything had happened to me, I would have orphaned two children. Unfortunately, I had good friends who orphaned their children who were from my unit. Uh, my unit got hit hard in a place called Sidon. Um, then I was in Operation Defensive Shield in 2002 in uh, the West Bank, in particular in Janine and in uh, Bethlehem. Uh, 2006, Second Lebanon War in Lebanon in uh, a place called Binj Bel, where, which was a very difficult battle. Uh, 2009, uh, Operation Cast Lead in Gaza in a place called Alatatra, which was also a very difficult battle. 2012, in um, Operation Pillar of Defense uh, along the Gaza border. And most recently, 2014, uh, in um, uh, the last Hamas-Israel war, um, along the Gaza border. Um, so that, that's uh, six wars that I've been in. How, how does the reserve system work? I mean, do they, as a reservist, do they call you up when, when, it's, when it's needed? And well, especially with you being here in the United States most of the time, and then you would go over there. If you live in Israel, there's an elaborate call-up system, and that call-up system consists of... Uh, a code word that is spoken on the radio that if you hear it, you just show up at your assembly point. Or if you've received a call-up notice, there's something called um, uh, Command 8, which means drop what you're doing and come now. Uh, and, and uh, you know, your unit mobilizes inside of hours. If you live outside of the United States, as I do, it's, it's pretty much your call as to whether or not you show up. Um, uh, it's hard, you know, you, you hear about the war before you get any kind of call up notice. Um, and if you've been in a combat unit any length of time, you kind of, you know, really love the guys that you've soldiered with the bond between people who have been in combat together is, is quite extraordinary. And you, you just feel awful if you're not there you just say i'm not i can't sit this out my guys are in the field and i'm just not gonna i can't be here i've got to be over there right i want to talk a little bit about i want to talk about your book about day of the dead uh gaza and what were the events that inspired you to write that book because i I really feel from reading it that these are real events and i feel like there's one character from what you've just told me that I feel now is, is based on yourself. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of me in a character called Danny Kahan and an awful lot of Danny Kahan and me. Um, in 2014, 
um, summer 2014. Uh, it was Operation Defensive. Sh- uh, no, Operation. What the hell they call it? Um, <laughs> There's a lot of them, right? Uh, pro- uh, Operation Protective Edge is what they called it in English, which was uh, in Hebrew. It was actually Operation Solid Rock. Okay. Um, and I was right on the Gaza border, and um, there was an advent of which something that was the most frightening evolution in terrorism that I had seen in 40 plus years as a soldier. And that was the advent of these terrorist tunnels attacks. Uh, these were uh, tunnels which began well inside of Gaza, went underneath the internationally recognized border of Israel. People talk about the 67 border. This was actually the 48 border of Israel. And um, these tunnels came up next to kindergartens, daycare centers, next to uh, little suburban communities, right where I was. And it it almost was like Night of the Living Dead, uh, where your lawn opens up and instead of zombies coming up out of the grave, all of a sudden a dozen terrorists emerged with AK-47s, RPGs, thousands of rounds of ammunition, grenades, and most frightening of all, uh, handcuffs with which they intended to take people hostage, drag them back through the tunnels into Gaza, uh, and hold them ransom or execute them. And um, uh, if you think of the um, horror that was perpetrated in Paris by three terrorists uh, in the Charlie Hebdo attacks or in San Bernardino, imagine um, uh, every day for a week having an attack of at least a dozen Uh, terrorists who are armed to the teeth, far better trained than any of those people, and who, you know, get to within a hundred meters of a kindergarten. Um, And it was really a terrifying um, prospect. Uh, I had people from my unit who gave gave their lives to to protect the civilians there. They literally were the only thing between them and the civilian population. When I got back to L.A., my agent said, and I had blocked, blogged a good deal during uh, the war. My agent said, look, this whole terrorist tunnel attack thing is, that's a movie. I mean, it's a Tom Clancy, edge of your seat movie. And I said, Jeff, you know, both of us know that no Hollywood studio is going to do a major motion picture with Israeli soldiers as the good guys. We are viewed as the bad guys. Uh, it would have to be an American story. And he said, right. I said, well, how do I take what happens on the border between Israel and Gaza and make that an American story? And he said, well, that's why they call me the agent, and that's why they call you the screenwriter. You write it, I sell it. And so I began to think about it, and the more I thought about it, the country that is most vulnerable to that type of terrorist tunnel attack is not Israel, because when the first terrorist tunnel attack happened, number one, we had our most elite forces on the border 24-7. We had drone surveillance, blimp surveillance, boots on the ground, everything that we possibly could throw at that border we had. Um, And we were able to foil the attack. But the day that the first attack happened, that night, 
we invaded Gaza because the, the threat was so great. It was an existential threat. And I realized that if such an attack happened in the United States via drug smuggling tunnels, and there are established contacts between the terrorist organizations and the cartels, the United States, A, doesn't have its most elite troops along the border with San Diego or with Mexico. It doesn't have the type of surveillance that Israel had. And there is absolutely no way that this or any other administration would authorize an invasion of northern Mexico to deal with a terrorist threat or authorize airstrikes against northern Mexico. So the country that to me was most vulnerable to that type of attack uh, wasn't Israel, but was the United States. And the more I thought about it, the more it seemed not only possible, but probable to me, as it does today, that ISIS is planning a major mass casualty attack against the United States via drug smuggling tunnels that they have uh, established contacts with the drug cartels into either Southern California or uh, Arizona or uh, Texas or Nevada. And tragically, numbers of the things that I described in the book, certainly the tactics and the armaments used, were exactly what was used in San Bernardino. Um, so uh, not only is it not far-fetched, um, not only is it not possible, I think, unfortunately, it's probable. What is the link between Hamas and Gaza and ISIS? I mean, is, is there a link between the two organizations? There's a very definite link. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, the Middle East is an odd place. Um, in yes. Gaza, uh, ISIS is vying for supremacy against Hamas. However, in Sinai, Hamas and ISIS cooperate very closely against Egypt. And so there is a, a very um, close working relationship uh, between ISIS and Hamas. During uh, the 2014 war, we know that ISIS had a definite presence in Gaza. They were looking at what happened uh, with the terrorist attack tunnels. They were learning the lessons of why those tunnel attacks were foiled by the Israelis and how they could get around the mechanisms that the Israelis used to, to attack the, against the United States. Um, so the scenario is not, not in the least far-fetched. Um, there's a very close working relationship between ISIS and Hamas in Gaza. Um, and also people who say, oh, well, Hamas and ISIS are Sunni and Hezbollah and Iran are Shia and therefore they would never ever work together, don't understand the way the Middle East works. Um, they would work together against the United States in a New York minute. Uh, they'd kill each other in the Middle East. But uh, if it were to plan an attack against the United States, as we now know, Iran aided Al-Qaeda in 9-11, and Iran is a Shia uh, nation, a Shia theocracy, and Al-Qaeda is a Sunni terrorist organization, and yet one afforded the other material aid uh, in carrying out its attacks against the United States. It literally is um, the enemy of my enemy um, and the friend of my friend, you know, in the Middle East. It's, it's a bit different than... Uh, 
than anywhere else. It, it seems like where you are geographically determines who your friends are and who, well, you, who you're allied just, with. Just like just, you were describing no. the Sinai and the difference between the Sinai and the Gaza Strip, which are two places that are right next to each other geographically, right. but the alliances are different. The, the alignment is different. Well, the alliance there is really that there's a common enemy to both Hamas and ISIS, and that's uh, Egypt. Egypt uh, views Hamas as a direct threat because they were uh, part of the Muslim Brotherhood. They were smuggling weapons into Egypt, uh, fomenting um, uh, terrorist attacks against Egypt. And so Egypt acted forcefully uh, to close the border between Hamas and uh, Egypt and to uh, stop the drug and uh, weapon smuggling channels that existed. Uh, and therefore, Hamas viewed Egypt and views Egypt as an enemy. ISIS likewise set up a presence in Sinai uh, where they have united with certain Bedouin tribes, which is a very potent uh, and formidable Alliance and Sinai, which was a very peaceful place, is Dodge City. It's no man's land. There's a real war going on in Sinai right yeah. now. And so Hamas views ISIS, which is its competitor in Gaza, as its ally in, in uh, Sinai. And about the, the tunnels going into the United States, I mean, just recently, I think in the last few months, I think in Guatemala, actually, weren't some Syrians uh, captured there and detained that were trying to get into Mexico? The, the, um, the designation by the U.S. Border Patrol is uh, OTM, other than Mexican. Right. And another, the number of other than Mexican infiltrators into the United States who are, in fact, um, from Islamic or Islamist, even uh, more precisely, countries or entities, uh, is really quite um, concerning. Um, you know, you've, you, it's now in the hundreds of people who are attempted to infiltrate, who uh, it turns out are from Syria, Pakistan, um, uh, Iran, um, parts of Iraq. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's of great concern. And yeah, in Guatemala, they got some guys who were traveling on fake passports who were Syrian. Also in the Caribbean, uh, they got guys. And, and the, the method that's described in the book is exactly what ISIS is doing now. I mean, it didn't take a military genius to figure that one out. You fly from um, the Middle East to places like Cyprus or Greece. Um, and from Cyprus or Greece, you fly to an EU country. Some of these folks have EU passports, which allows them to come into the United States without visas. Others uh, don't have EU passports. You fly in groups of no more than 10 each into South or Central America. And um, then you migrate by foot or by, you know, uh, coyote up to uh, the Mexican border with the United States. And all of that was described at a time where people said, oh, that's nonsense, that's science fiction. 
Well, it turns out it's not only not science fiction, but we've already caught numbers of people doing exactly what was described in the book. You know, Dan, you mentioned San Bernardino and you mentioned what happened over there. And, you know, it's it was strange for me, and this is something that's come up on this show quite a lot. It was strange for me that they said that initially they said it was three shooters. Mm-hmm. And then it was just kind of pinned on that it was the guy and his wife. Yeah. And the third guy go, went. And just as you're as you're saying these things, my mind is turning back to that and thinking possibly there could be some kind of connection to that as well. Well, the United States has a habit and has had a habit for 20 plus years of covering up more than they reveal. And um, I wouldn't doubt at all if there was a third shooter who went uncaptured that uh, the powers that be said, no, it was just two shooters and we got them. And there's nothing to worry about, folks. Um, If you look at, not to take too much of a side trip into the Twilight Zone, (laughs) but if you remember the Oklahoma City bombing, when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, there were two composite drawings that were released by the FBI, and they were called John Doe Number 1 and John Doe Number 2. John Doe Number 1 looked exactly like Timothy McVeigh. It was a wonderful composite drawing. John Doe Number 2 was described as being 5'8", 160 to 180 pounds, dark-complected, Filipino, Mexican, or Middle Eastern, a full head of jet black hair, um, and uh, uh, he was seen in the company of Timothy McVeigh by no fewer than 21 witnesses who swore out affidavits under oath and penalty of perjury. Um, Right after they caught Terry Nichols, the Justice Department changed its story and said there, there was no John Doe number two because Terry Nichols looked nothing like John Doe number two. He was six foot one or two. He had thinning hair. He had very pale complexion. He was like the whitest man in America. Yeah, it was and he obviously not him. Glasses. So it was obvious that John Doe number two was not Terry Nichols. Right, and right. the Justice Department said, well, the explanation is there was no John Doe number two. He never existed. Uh, well, there was. 21 people saw him. Um, it may come as a shock to some people that the United States of America did not present one witness at the trial of Timothy McVeigh that placed Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City, uh, either the night before, the morning of, or directly after the bombing. That wasn't because there weren't witnesses who saw Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City. There were 21 witnesses who saw Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City the night before, the morning of, on the way to, and fleeing the bombing. The problem was all 21 witnesses saw Timothy McVeigh in the company of at least one and up to seven Middle Eastern men. And the government of the United States of America um, was not going to go there. And so... Literally, not one witness was presented at the trial who could place Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City. And I personally interviewed McVeigh's attorney, uh, and he said, uh, I have 21 affidavits here of people who saw Timothy McVeigh 
uh, in the company with up to seven Middle Eastern men. Uh, and some of them talked to the Middle Eastern men, not just saw them. So um, when you say, could there have been a third shooter in San Bernardino and was the U.S. government capable of covering that up? Uh, my answer is damn right. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, agree. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the background between the Hamas and Israeli conflict that's going on in Gaza. You know, how did that start and how did that kind of progress? Because I think it's, it's, it's good for us to kind of understand how that happened. Sure. Um, in 2005, again, you know, people have a tendency to think that the history of the Middle East began with whatever the last attack was or the last conflict was or the last incident was. Uh, and they have a, a remarkable lack of knowledge about the Middle East. So in 2005, the government of Israel decided to unilaterally uh, withdraw from Gaza, and not only withdraw from Gaza, but to do something rather extraordinary. We, we uh, activated the Israeli army and uprooted 10,000 people from their farms, from their businesses, from their homes, and from their places of worship, except that those 10,000 people that they uprooted were not Palestinians, they were Jews. Had we uprooted 10,000 Palestinians, we'd have been called war criminals and taken before The Hague. Uh, because we uprooted 10,000 Jewish settlers, uh, it was a move that was applauded across the, uh, across the globe as necessary for peace. And, and the notion was, and the policy was called Gaza first. The idea was, let's see if we withdraw from Gaza, if we dismantle the settlements, which everybody has said have been the impediment to peace, uh, and we turn it over to the Palestinian Authority, our hope was that Gaza would become the Singapore of the Middle East. And we left behind, by the way, usually when you withdraw from an, if you think of something as an enemy entity, you do a scorched earth policy. Even when we had peace with the Egyptians, we blew up the cities we had created in, in uh, the Sinai, especially a little city called Yamit, which is a very pretty town. We blew it up. We said, you know, we're withdrawing, but we're not leaving anything of use behind to anybody. When we withdrew from Gaza, we left all the infrastructure in place and it was rather spectacular infrastructure, some of the best hothouse agriculture in the world, which would have supplied, supplied jobs to thousands of people and provided literally tens of millions of dollars of income to, to the residents of Gaza. Um, as we were, were withdrawing, they began launching rockets at us so that they could say uh, the Israelis withdrew because they were afraid of our rockets. Uh, there was an election that was held for the parliament and Hamas competed in that election and it won a parliamentary uh, majority. But the Palestine Authority executive, which operates much like uh, any other country, has a president and a legislature, the executive branch was still in power in Gaza. So regardless of the fact that Hamas had won a parliamentary election, um, the Palestinian Authority under uh, Abu Mazen uh, was in, uh, in authority in Gaza. 
Hamas then staged as bloodthirsty a coup as you have ever seen in your life. You can still see the videos on, on YouTube. They killed hundreds, not of Jews, not of Israelis, but of their fellow Palestinians. They lined them up against walls. They machine gunned them. They blindfolded them. They pushed them off the top of multi-story buildings. And the mildest thing they did in interrogation was to blow the kneecaps off of folks. And I, I had, uh, have met numbers of them because they fled to Israel for, mili- for, uh, for uh, medical treatment. So Hamas, far from being the duly elected, democratically elected representative of the Palestinian people, is in fact the group of terrorist thugs that overthrew the Palestinian authority in uh, Gaza and seized power. When they did, almost immediately they began launching rockets against Israel. And Israel has absorbed roughly 15,000 rocket attacks from Gaza. And when those attacks became intolerable, uh, the first time in 2009, uh, we engaged in uh, Operation um, Cast Lead, where we actually had to go into Gaza, clean out some of the terrorist infrastructure. That's when we first ran into the advent of the terrorist attack tunnels uh, and that was in this place called Alatatra, where they had literally emptied out the village, and I would say a third to the half of the houses in the village were all booby-trapped. Uh, they had tunnels in every one of the houses, and the idea was they would draw in light infantry, set off an IED, and then there were kidnapping teams inside those tunnels. They would have jumped out and drug the wounded or um, killed Israelis into the tunnels, whisked them out of the village in five minutes, and they would have had a situation at the end of the war where they would have had hundreds of hostages, which for Israel is, is a, would have brought Israel to its knees. Happily, um, and one might say through an act of a compassionate divine being, we caught a Hamas terrorist who had on his person a map of all of the tunnels and all of the booby traps. And as a result, not one soldier was kidnapped or drug into these things, and we were able to neutralize all all of the tunnels. It was at that point in time in 2009 that somebody very smart in Hamas said, okay, the tunnels didn't work because we got unlucky, they found the map. But you know, these tunnels are really a good idea, and they aren't just a defensive weapon to use once Israel invades, when you want to suck Israel into a battlefield that you've prepared. They're actually an offensive weapon if we could dig the tunnels underneath the border and have them come up inside of Israel. And so that's when the the plan to build this network of terrorist attack tunnels that were used in 2014 was launched. It was uh, a five-year plan, and I remember vividly, um, after 2009, Israel was placing an embargo on importing steel and concrete because we sniffed that something was up. And the Palestinians said, what are you afraid of? Do you think we're going to make rockets out of steel and concrete? Were you going to use that to rebuild hospitals and schools and mosques and baby clinics? 
Well, instead of doing that, they built terrorist attack tunnels, and that was financed by the people who are listening to this program, by and large, by American taxpayers. What? What? I'm real. That's where I want to go with this here. Uh, you talk about a lot in the book about kind of like the the propaganda of the way Hamas and I guess Hezbollah too, kind of like the, for lack of a better term, I guess the the use of human shields and you call it kind of like the dead baby strategy. What has Israel? They actually refer to it as the dead baby strategy as well. So do they really? Wow. Well, there is a perception over here. And I would say that you, you're very aware of this, that, that Israel is in a way kind of the bad guy that they go in and they just they just blow stuff up and then leave and then that causes the next uh, round of terrorists to come up and because the you know they go in and it's the uh, kind of like a Hatfield and McCoy kind of a a, a thing you know the, yeah. the the blood feud that has been going on for all this time you, yeah. when you go in and you, you just engender the idea that Israel goes in and engenders terrorism and it just causes more war. So it's just kind of a vicious circle. Yeah. Uh, Nothing could be farther from the truth. That's kind of the impression that I get, that I get from, from the book. And that is this kind of use of propaganda that uh, Hamas and Hezbollah has used uh, against Israel in a way. And and I guess too, well, I mean, Israel has kind of blockaded the Gaza Strip area as well, so nothing can get in and nothing can get out, and that's actually, something that has looked that's, bad as well. That's actually not true. Israel has has instituted almost exactly the same type of quarantine that John F. Kennedy did against Cuba uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, far from being that nothing can get in or nothing can get out. Literally hundreds of trucks of humanitarian aid go into Gaza every day, and that includes when we were at war with Gaza. In and I personally was there. 2009, 2012, 2014, we would have between 1 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon what we called a humanitarian pause in which Israeli units were instructed not to fire one shot unless fired upon. The only way you could... Fire was in self-defense. And during that humanitarian pause, we allowed between two and 400 trucks of humanitarian aid to go into Gaza every single day, something that has never happened in the history of warfare, that enemy combatants allow humanitarian aid to go in every single day. And what did Hamas do? Hamas would begin shelling the crossing point, which was called Kerem Shalom, exactly at one o'clock with mortars and rockets so that the trucks couldn't get through. And then they would blame Israel for imposing a blockade. I had a BBC crew who uh, were rabidly anti-Israel, and I explained this to them, and they said, well, that's actually very hard to believe, old boy. We can't imagine that such a thing actually happens. Hmm. I said, well, uh, if you'll come with me, old chap, uh, tomorrow at one o'clock, I shall take you to the Kerem Shalom crossing, 
I advise you to bring good running shoes because I will point the way to the shelter, but I shan't carry you there. So if your ass gets blown up, it's not on me. <laughs> and uh, I took the BBC crew down there and I brought them down at 1230 and they could see a line of 200 trucks with Red Cross in insignia on them. And uh, at exactly one o'clock, Hamas opened up with a rocket and mortar attack, and you saw five of the fastest Brits you've ever seen in your life running for the same shelter that I pointed them to, uh, where we spent the next two hours because we were under nonstop rocket and mortar attack. And to their credit, they actually aired that report. Um, but that is what Hamas did. I'll give you another example. When I went into uh, Alatatra in 2009, uh, because I am uh, advanced in years and uh, the Israeli army tried to retire me forcibly 23 years ago, um, I have uh, gray hair and, uh, and look my age, which is 68. When I go in with the troops, um, Palestinians usually think that I must be an exalted general uh, and so usually come up to me with whatever their complaints are when I am in fact a lowly captain. And I uh, had one Palestinian came up to me who spoke uh, uh, good Hebrew because he used to work in Israel before uh, Hamas took over. And he said, uh, General, why don't you go in and kill them all? And I said, who exactly are we supposed to kill? He said, Hamas. And I said, and, and why would that be? He said, because when the humanitarian aid comes in, they hijack the trucks, they then triple the prices on the goods and sell them on the black market, first of all to their own cronies, and then we get whatever is left. He said, this field that you're standing in used to be my farm. I grew the best sunflower seeds in the Middle East. He said they confiscated it to turn it into a rocket launching pad against Israel. He said, how do I feed my family with rockets? Go in and kill them all. And this was a Gazan Palestinian Arab wow. who, who, you know, when people say, oh, Gaza is occupied, I say, yes, it is. You're right. It has been occupied since 2005 by Hamas. And it's been a very cruel occupation, uh, far crueler than when Israel occupied Gaza. And, and uh, the people there are caught between a rock and a hard place. And my heart goes out to them uh, it, it because really, they're under a terrible regime. It really makes you feel sorry for just the normal person that's trying to live under this atmosphere of this, this, this constant war and oh, having yeah. to deal with what really essentially is kind of a criminal thug network because that's what it sounds like. Well, it's a criminal thug network with a religious fanaticism. In other words, right now, um, music has been outlawed in Gaza. So again, if you, you can see the video on YouTube, you'll see a wedding at which people, uh, you know, a Palestinian wedding at which the people had the effrontery to play music. And two truckloads of Gaza th of uh, Hamas thugs pull up and begin machine gunning people. Um, it's against the law for men to cut women's hair. And so the beauty shops have been closed down. 
Uh, Hamas is no less of a fascistic, theocratic um, group of thugs than is ISIS. Um, they have the exact same worldview. They have the exact same uh, goal, which is the establishment of an Islamic caliphate. For Hamas, the establishment of a Palestinian state is a stepping stone and a minor one to the establishment of an Islamic state, uh, which is their goal. Uh, they differ from ISIS in aesthetics in that they blow pe people's brains out instead of cutting their heads off. Um, and, the, and the reason that they are not more potent than they are is that the Israeli defense forces and the Egyptian army keeps them in check. Otherwise, they would be as deadly a threat as uh, either Hezbollah or ISIS is. Right, because they're, the Gaza Strip isn't very big and they're kind of contained to that area. Here's a question that I want to ask you, and uh, this is something that uh, that I've read about and actually recently, uh, actually in a Wikipedia article about Hamas. Right. And this is when Hamas started out as a offshoot of the Islam, as the of the Muslim Brotherhood. Correct. Um, and during the Israeli occupation, uh, how the, th that branch of the Muslim Brotherhood was almost encouraged as kind of a uh, by the Israeli occupying forces as kind of a uh, counterweight against Fatah, against the more the secular kind of groups in the PLO. Yes. Uh, is this something that maybe backfired on Israel? Absolutely. This was, you know, there's an expression in Yiddish which is uberchachem, uh, which means, uh, you know, you're too smart for your own good. So there were some guys um, in the Israeli defense establishment who said, look, we've, we've got a real problem here with uh, Fatah, which was a terrorist organization. But secular, uh, not religious. It was secular and not religious. Right. Um, but no less deadly. Um, you know, uh, uh, as Joan Baez famously said, a socialist beating hurts just as much as a capitalist beating. Well, a, a secular suicide right. bomber is, is just as deadly as a religious suicide bomber. Um, at any rate, uh, there were some guys who were too smart for their own good within the Israeli defense establishment who said, well, why don't we kind of turn a blind eye to Hamas and since they view Fatah as their deadly enemy even more so than Israel is, why don't we just turn a blind eye to it and let them have at it? And um, that has come to bite us on the ass. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it, it really makes you think because like we, the United States has done that as well. I mean, well, is doing that right now. Mujahideen, ISIS. I mean, look at Syria. Yeah. If you look at what the United States is doing in Syria, it's making the exact same mistake on steroids that the Israeli defense establishment made, and it will it will bite the United States on the ass even worse. We've become basically the air force for Bashar al-Assad. Now that's a pretty weird turn of events, and for Iran, we we've become the Iranian Hezbollah Bashar al-Assad air force, and and um, that's that's uh, that's some weird stuff that's going on there, and. It will bite us on the ass just as surely as, as the Israeli mistaken attitude toward Hamas uh, bit Israel on the ass. 
Yeah, it, yeah it, it's, it's all it's, these different alliances and different groups. And it's just, I mean, no wonder, like my friend Luke here sitting here, my co-host, I mean, he's just confused as to everything that's going on over there. And it's just like, I don't think he even really wants to even know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I've had well, to ask him like three separate times. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you look at what the United States is doing in Syria and, and Iraq, it's absolutely insane. I mean, it's it's beyond incomprehensible. It's to the point of insanity. Well, we have we, two different po- we have two different policies for uh, ISIS in Syria and ISIS in Iraq, almost. Well, and 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 as I say, we've we have decided for whatever misguided purposes that somehow it's in the U.S. interest to make Iran the dominant power in the Middle East, and in so doing, we've thrown every ally that the United States has had for the last 50 years under the bus. And some of them have been very good allies, like Jordan. Some of them have been very deserving peoples like the Kurds, who've gotten screwed by everybody in the Middle East, who who are more deserving of a country than any religious minority in the Middle East, and yet they've been screwed by Turkey, by Iraq, by Syria, and by Iran. Um, They've been screwed as bad as the Armenians were. Um, and we've thrown, and the Yazidis, who are a poor religious minority, who we've absolutely thrown under the bus and let yeah. them be slaughtered, let their women be taken as sex slaves, we turned a blind eye to it because uh, we decided to make Iran the dominant power in the Middle East. And, and Iran is developing intercontinental ballistic missiles with which to hit the United States. It's just weird. It's a bizarre uh, thing which I am not smart enough to explain. Yeah, there's a whole other show there about Iran. We could do a whole yeah. other thing. <laughs> but sticking with Israel and and Palace and the Palestinians, uh, mm-hmm. I, I really want to ask about what you know, kind of like Israel's goals are as far as the occupied territories. This is a this is a long question here. You know, like the, what the people, the Israeli people's view are are. Because I know that there are people that that disagree with the policy of the Israeli government over there. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone that comes to mind is Miko Pellid, who is the son of a of a famous IDF general. I mm-hmm. believe fought in the seven in the uh, Six Day War, mm-hmm. and you know he's very much for uh, what he sees as like this uh, bad things that have been done to the Palestinians by the Israelis. Uh, he he's very critical of the Israeli government, and, mm-hmm. and 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 then you have the settlers in the West Bank. Of course, there's no more settlers in Gaza because they were pulled out, but right. you have the settlers there in the West Bank, and you have like the and there's also the ultra orthodox Jewish element in Israel itself that it, that has caused problems even for the Israeli government. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of complications, a lot of complicated stuff going on in Israel itself. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you have to separate out when you say the occupied territories, you have to separate the West Bank from Gaza because the Gaza Strip has not been occupied for uh, 10 years and and is not occupied. Um, There's not one Israeli soldier who uh, has one centimeter of a footprint in Gaza. Uh, We have a quarantine on what goes into Gaza in terms of weaponry, which is the same kind of quarantine that the United States had against Cuba, and that was against the threat of a missile being fired 
from Cuba at the United States. Israel's absorbed 15,000 missile attacks um, uh, uh, from Gaza into Israel. So uh, when you say occupied territories, Gaza isn't part of that equation. So that leaves the West Bank. Right. Um, the majority of people in the, in the state of Israel, according to every poll that's been taken, uh, support a two-state solution, uh, would like to see a Palestinian state demilitarized that recognizes Israel as the Jewish state living side by side alongside of Israel in, in peace. The problem that we have is we don't trust that if we were to pull out of uh, the West Bank, the same thing that happened in Gaza wouldn't happen in the West Bank, even if the Palestinian Authority had the best of intentions, that they wouldn't be overthrown inside of days, not weeks, either by Hamas or worse now, by ISIS. Um, and then we would have ISIS literally on our doorstep or Hamas literally on our doorstep, and, and that would be an existential threat. No plane could land or take off in Israel if that were the case. And there is universal agreement, even amongst the Palestinians, that the only thing that's keeping the Palestinian Authority in place from being the victim of the same kind of coup that murdered them all in Gaza is the Israel Defense Forces. They can, you know, piss and moan all they like, Uh, But they all know that absent the Israel Defense Forces, they'd be killed by Hamas or ISIS. So we have a a situation where we're kind of damned if we do and damned if we don't. Um, You mentioned the settler movement. The settler movement is minuscule in terms of Israeli population. Um, The the vast majority of Israelis uh, support a two-state solution. Within the settler movement, I would say probably 50% of the people who live in the West Bank in the various quote-unquote settlements or townships in the West Bank do so not out of ideological purposes, but because they can get cheaper housing than they could get if they lived in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is, uh, the housing in Tel Aviv is as expensive as Manhattan. So yeah, you from the way you described it in the book, it seems like a pretty like ritzy, very ritzy city. Well, it's it's uh, not so much ritzy, but it's really exciting. I mean, it's one of the most exciting cities in the world. And you'll find, you know, it's like, you know, if you go into New York and you find uh, apartment buildings that are 80, 90, 100 years old, you still are going to pay you know, $600,000 for a studio apartment. It's pretty close to that in Israel. It's not necessarily that they're ritzy, high-rise apartments. It's that the it's such an exciting city. People want to live there, and the real estate values have gone through the roof. So I would say 50% of the people who live in the territories in, in the West Bank do so for economic reasons as opposed to ideological reasons. Um, there's a small minority within the settler movement that is very, very, very dangerous. And, and I personally view them as dangerous as ISIS and they are Jewish terrorists and, and, um, they should be treated as far as I'm concerned, the same way we treat ISIS. Um, 
they're they're as fanatical, they're as dangerous, um, they are as inimical to the state of Israel as ISIS. They want to dismantle the state of Israel and establish uh, a kingdom with a king of Judea. Um, they're they're Jewish ISIS, and right now they number tens of activists, but they probably have hundreds of supporters, not thousands, but they have, you know, hundreds of supporters. And it's, that's a dangerous movement that Israel uh, has jumped on within the last month and really wants to get a handle on because they realize how dangerous they are. Let me ask you a little bit about that, Dan. Uh, you know, Netanyahu's party, the Likud, is one of the far right parties uh, in Israel, uh, do you, do they pay lip service to some of these? Uh, well, as you described, like kind of like the Jewish ISIS, they pay no, lip service no. to the ultra orthodox there. Not uh, at all. And at the same time, trying to kind of diminish their power. No, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll step back a second. I, I don't think that Likud is a far right party. I think Likud is a center right party. Okay, because um, as it's come down to me and from my studies that I've uh, I, I've seen the, I've been told that it's been that it was a far right party uh, at yeah, least in the beginning. I, I that's accurate. I think they are a center right party. They are. They have made you know Israeli the Israeli constitution is such that um, it's kind of it's well there is a there is no Israeli constitution. There's what's called a basic law, but there is no constitution. So the Israeli foreign government, in trying to be overly democratic, grants tremendous power to small parties. So if you even get, you know, 10,000 votes, you will get a seat in parliament. What that means is that instead of like a two-party system that you have in the United States, where it's either the Democrats or Republicans who win, in Israel, in their elections, there is one party which will uh, have a plurality of votes and they then need to form a coalition in order to have a a government. That means that the smaller parties carry an inordinate amount of power and you have some far-right parties who then have formed up into a coalition with the Likud government and and there are some uh, very far-right parties who are part of that coalition, even those far-right parties, and one of them that comes to mind is that called the Jewish Home Party, which is led by a guy who's regarded as very far-right. His name is Naftali Bennett. Um, and Naftali Bennett came out in the strongest possible terms condemning these Jewish terrorists and said, listen, these are people who have to be treated as if they were ISIS. Uh, there's no kid gloves with them. Um, they're murderous thugs, and they're as much of an enemy to the state of Israel as ISIS is. So there's, they are universally reviled, but there is a, there is a seed which, if it is left untended, uh, can grow into a very poisonous bush. And I, I, I think the state of Israel, uh, the government of Israel, is um, is recognizing that and acting very forcefully against them right now. But yeah, there's there's a, a Jewish element that is 
uh, tiny and virulent and uh, is regards the state of Israel as an abomination and wants to overthrow the government of Israel, let, yeah, let alone yeah. the Palestinians. Because when Israel was founded, one of the things that I uh, read, uh, it was Haim Potok, uh, The Chosen. I read yeah. that book for a college class. And one thing that I never knew was that the ultra-Orthodox, when Israel was founded, were actually against the foundation of Israel because they saw it as these these kind of secular, upstart, socialist guys trying to, to start this Jewish homeland when they said that it was the it could only happen when the Messiah came. Right. Well, you have to separate out. You know, the ultra-Orthodox are not the same as the settler movement, and people make that mistake. And uh, David Ben-Gurion famously said that uh, even without the uh, Arab-Israel conflict, the Jews could have had a very nice war amongst themselves. Hmm. So you had elements of um, rejectionist ultra-Orthodox, uh, who are known in Hebrew as the Haredim, and they regard uh, the establishment of the state of Israel as an abomination because they believe that the state of that the Commonwealth of Israel can only occur when the Messiah comes and so uh, the establishment by secular entities was a sin against God and again you're talking about a minority of the population but they certainly uh, were there there's even a group which is minuscule within minuscule, and they are called Niture Karta, and they uh, are beyond ultra-Orthodox. They actually print their own passports. They don't uh, regard themselves as citizens of Israel. They, for years, were pro-PLO because they said that um, uh, Israel, having been founded without the Messiah, is an abomination before God, and so they'll make an alliance with anyone who wants to destroy it. So uh, to think that Israel uh, is in an easy place and um, uh, that politics over there are not uh, um, Levantine complicated is, uh, is a mistake. Do you think that there's ever going to be peace over there? Or do you think it's just going to go on and on as it, as it is, that it's just going to just going to keep the balls going to keep rolling as far as the war and the struggle. I, I, I think that unfortunately, and, and, and again, all the polls will, will say that the Palestinian population believes that the Palestinians have been betrayed over and over by their own leadership, which it was horrifically corrupt. Um, you know, in 2002, during Operation uh, Defensive Shield, as I said, I was in Bethlehem and, and, and uh, Janine. And um, difficult fighting in both places. And in Bethlehem in particular, I don't know if people remember, but the PLO took over the uh, Church of the Nativity, which is the holiest place in all that. of Christendom. And they established snipers' nests in the bell towers. Now, if you can imagine what would happen if American forces took over anything in Mecca, or let alone Israeli forces, why there, you know, it would be World War III. But the world didn't say boo when the PLO took over the Church of the Nativity, and and there was sniper fire. I was under that sniper fire, so I remember it pretty vividly. Um, um, 
during that time, uh, when we were cleaning out the PLO out of Bethlehem, one of the places that I went into uh, was Yasser Arafat's palace in Bethlehem. Now, he had built a palace in Bethlehem that in which he had never spent one night of his life. He had never slept there one night. He built it solely to show his power and his magnificence and his, you know, his, his royalty. The sinks and the toilets and the toilet fixtures were made out of 24 karat gold. It was right next to one of the most squalid Palestinian refugee camps imaginable. And so here was a guy who was spending literally billions on stuff that he never even saw, never even used, just as symbols of his power while his people lived in squalor. So the Palestinians have been consistently betrayed by their own leadership. They regard their own leadership as, as hopelessly corrupt. Uh, it's one of the reasons, actually, that Hamas won the election, the uh, parliamentary election against uh, the PLO, because the Palestinians said the PLO is so corrupt, they steal all our money. At least Hamas is religious. Maybe they won't be as corrupt. Well, they found out they were no less corrupt. Like the who said, the old boss, same as the old boss, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, the Palestinian people have been victimized by their own leadership. And in order to maintain their power, they have to create the constant boogeyman of of Israel being, you know, all Jews are descendants of pigs and monkeys. Every child is is educated to believe that killing Jews is the noblest activity possible. You can see the YouTube videos where a three-year-old girl holds a knife in her hand and her father is encouraging her to say, kill the Jews, stab, stab, stab. And you can't educate an entire generation to believe that way and expect that peace will come anytime soon because you've, it, it is, it is absolutely possible to poison the minds of, of people to the point where, where you have now kids who are 13 to 17 years of age who are not disappointed in that there's no political horizon they're not acting out of despair that they don't have an education. They're not acting out of despair that they don't have a job. They are acting out of religious extremism and blind hatred. Kids as young as 12 and 13 going out with knives trying to kill 70 and 80-year-old Jews knowing that they'll be shot down and thinking that's cool because they'll get into heaven and get 72 virgins and their posters will be up all over town and they'll look like Rambo and they'll be heroes. Yes. And it's very difficult for a Western mind to grasp that mindset. Um, but that mindset is real. And it's, it's, um, it's a difficult one to combat. So w will there be peace in my lifetime? Uh, I have no idea. I've, I've worked assiduously for it for the past 30 years. I had what I thought was a pretty good peace plan that I got the U.S. Congress to endorse 25 years ago and traveled with then the number two on the House Foreign Relations Committee, Congressman Wayne Owens of 
Salt Lake City of blessed memory. He was a wonderful man. We went to meet with uh, Mubarak in Egypt. We met with the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, with His Majesty King Hussein in Jordan. And then I had closed-door meetings with some of the most uh, notorious terrorist organizations in the world, um, uh, trying to find a plan that would enable Israel and the Palestinians to make peace. And the conclusion that I finally came to was, you can have the best plan in the world, but if one of the parties doesn't really want to make peace, it's not going to happen. And you can have a deeply flawed plan, but if everybody wants to make peace, it will happen. And, and right now we're just, we're just not there. And it's horrible. It's tragic. It's a tragedy for the Palestinians as well as for the Jews. Um, and I don't see a way out of it right now. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, the one that really blows my mind is the uh, Hamas Mickey Mouse their version of Mickey Mouse that uh, tells kids to to shoot the Israeli soldiers. And it's so so messed up. I mean, that's just so messed up. If you go on their Sesame street, (laughs) that you, you will see three year old children. They say, what do you want to do when you grow up? And the child will say, I want to kill the Jews. And the host of the show will say, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? And, And when you build that in from birth, that's a tough one to overcome. Yeah, that's exactly what the Nazis did, right? I mean, the Hitler Youth. Uh, one question I want to ask you, and this is kind of, I don't, this is a far-reaching question, so we may not have time to really cover it, but uh, the evangelical Christian support for Israel, mm-hmm. do you feel that it helps Israel or does it hurt it? You have to get more specific. Help politically. Well, yeah, I I guess politically, but at the same time, there seems to be, especially in the, uh, I guess, the evangelical Christian, there there is a very kind of uh, eschatological or apocalyptic, in some ways, I think, um, reason to help Israel because there's the whole idea of to build the third temple. And do you feel that, does that does that hurt it? Does it help it? Well, let me preface this by saying that I, I have really deep ties into the evangelical world, and I deeply love my Christian brothers and sisters, deeply. Uh, I've established uh, in my son's memory what is the largest and finest Christian film school in the entire world, which is the Zachy Gordon Cinematic Arts Center at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, and, and so I, I'm not a little bit conversant with the evangelical world. I, I think I'm for a believing Jew. I'm probably a lot conversant with the evangelical world. And I think there's a misunderstanding that a lot of people have where they think that evangelical support for Israel is apocalyptic in nature, where as in fact, most evangelicals will point to a quote, uh, which is, I believe, Genesis 14. And the quote is, God says in the Old Testament, whoever shall bless Israel will I bless, and whoever shall curse Israel will I curse. And I have found 
that the majority of evangelical support for Israel has nothing to do with the creation of a third temple or the coming of the Messiah, but has everything to do with that quote in Genesis 14 where they, where they believe um, he who blesses Israel will be blessed. And, and when you talk to evangelicals, they will say, take a look at the history of the United States. The United States is a blessed country. The United States was the first country to recognize Israel. Um, the United States has supported traditionally the reestablishment of a Jewish homeland as far back as our founding fathers and Abraham Lincoln. And they will tell you part of the reason that the United States has been blessed is that we have blessed Israel. And in my experience, at least, that's been the foundation of evangelical support for Israel. Um, has it hurt Israel? No, not not in the least. Uh, uh, I think it's it's benefited Israel. I think many times Israelis are not sufficiently appreciative of how much it's it's benefited Israel. Um, and I think Israelis, you know, a lot of Israelis trace their origins to Eastern Europe, where their experiences under Russian Orthodox Christianity uh, was anything but benign, you know, um, and I can tell you that from my own family's experience. My father grew up in Tsarist Russia, and, you know, I remember the stories of the pogroms that he told me where, you know, his family was slaughtered by, by Christians, and he uh, had a prejudice against Christians until the day he died because he lived through such horrors. And I could not get through his head that the evangelical American Christian of today was not the czarist Russian Orthodox Christian that killed his family in 1905. Right. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a question that I really, that I really wanted to ask. It's a question that's come on many different viewpoints on this show, especially. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's messianic. I mean, I I mean, I, I like I say, I have pretty um, deep inroads with with uh, the evangelical community, and and um, have had long and uh, um, beautiful discussions into the night with uh, leading evangelical pastors, and it it, it truly has been a result. Uh, in terms of their support of Genesis 14, which is, I will bless whoever blesses Israel and curse whoever curses Israel. And it, and it has almost nothing to do with a messianic apocalyptic vision. I think that's a misconception. Well, we're almost out of time. I wanted to kind of get your, what's going to happen in the, in the next book, the, the next book that's coming out, you said in March. So it's pretty soon. And also yeah. where people can, can get the books and also contact you. Um, you know, the first book is Day of the Dead, book one, Gaza. And it, if anybody is a Tom Clancy fan and would like a really neat read and that's pretty accurate about what happens in the IDF and the world of espionage as well in the Middle East, uh, it's, it's based on 40 years of experience as a soldier plus a year of pretty meticulous research with both Israeli forces, Navy SEALs, DEA, FBI, uh, U.S. Special Forces. Um, 
So book one sets up the notion that ISIS is planning to use um, drug smuggling tunnels for a mass casualty attack against the United States, which will take place in San Diego, during which time they'll take out uh, the Navy SEALs um, uh, base at Coronado. All the um, odd-numbered teams of Navy SEALs are on the West Coast in Coronado Island. All the even-numbered teams are in uh, Virginia. So you could imagine them taking out the Navy SEALs because people don't realize it, but U.S. military personnel are barred from carrying weapons on U.S. military installations, which means you take out some shore patrol and rent cops and you can kill anybody you want, which is why a fat psychiatrist was able to kill 13 people and warn 30 others with two handguns in Fort Hood. Because when you take a weapon away from a soldier, he's not a soldier anymore, he's a victim. So that's one target. The other target is half the U.S. Pacific Fleet, which is at anchor in San Diego. And the third and more frightening target is you know, to kidnap as many men, women, and children as possible, drag them back through the tunnels, and execute them on uh, YouTube in, in Mexico. That's the conceit of the, uh, of, of the first book, that that's the plan that's going into action. Book two, Day of the Dead, America, is how our team of five heroes who are made up of a Navy SEAL, a DEA agent, a female CIA agent, uh, and an FBI sort of drunk and uh, a um, military intelligence officer from the Gibati Brigade in the Israel Defense Forces, how they foil that plan in the tunnels. It's sort of an underground tunnel war uh, that, that takes place below the streets of San Diego. And it's, you know, it's really an edge of the seat, exciting, fun ride for anybody who likes Vince Flynn or Tom Clancy, they will have a ball with this book. Um, it's, like I say, meticulously researched, um, and it's um, it's an edge-of-the-seat thriller. Uh, and unfortunately, I think it's not just possible, but probable. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the first book. Um, like I said, I've almost almost done with it, and it's very well written, and it flows very, very nicely. And Thank you. People can get it on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. Uh, and I've learned a lot from the book. and I've learned a lot from the interview as well. And you oh. have another book called Postcards from Heaven. Yep. And uh, I want to do a whole show on that later on. But this, just basically, what is that book about? Postcards from Heaven came about after my son was killed in a car accident. And... It was based on the notion that there are things that happen in our lives which are, I believe, messages from those who have gone to the other side. And they're not weighty tomes or letters or they're, – they're postcards. And they basically all have the same message, which is got here fine. It's really beautiful. Much love till we meet again. And – Everyone that I have talked to, I've, where I've said, have you felt that you got that kind of a little message from a loved one who was on the other side who had departed? I've never met anyone who has said no. 
everyone that I've ever posed that question to has said, you know, uh, I was feeling really blue. I was depressed to the point of suicide. And all of a sudden, my father or my mother's favorite song came on the radio and snapped me out of it. Or, you know, one thing or another, which you can say was coincident, but you would have to bend over backwards to, to, uh, to believe some of the things that are in that book. So it's a list of things in my own life that have happened, um, of those messages from, from uh, people that I love who are on the other side of life uh, that have kept me going at, uh, at some dark moments. Some of them are really funny stories. Some of them hopefully will, will touch your heart and uh, uh, um, perhaps bring a tear to your eye, but all of them are recognizable and like I say, I've never met anyone who has said no to me when I said, have you ever felt the presence of someone that you love from the other side at a time when you need them? Universally, I've heard the answer to be yes. That would include me. I've had the same kind of experiences myself. And, yeah. And sorry uh, about your loss of your son. That, Thank you. Well, Dan, you've been an excellent guest. Uh, this has been an Awesome interview. Is there anything you guys wanted to ask? Good. Uh, sounds like you covered it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, well, this is. I, I really appreciate it. It's been it's been it's been fun. You've been you've been super and let me ramble on where I rambled. Uh, <laughs> once again, I think if if folks would like to read a really cool book, uh, which is a Tom Clancy thriller, but they'll also get a real handle on what the Middle East is like, and it's a complicated place. Absolutely. Day of the Dead, Book One, Gaza, uh, which is out there right now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and then Day of the Dead, Book Two, America, which will come out in March. All right, excellent. Well, stay on the line for Dan. We're going to close out this segment, and we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Oh, is that me? <laughs> That's you. Uh, Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Yeah, he's listing off all of his accomplishments and stuff, you know. But uh, I wanted to tell our listeners that. Uh, one time I won a spelling bee award in high school and it was the shining example of my life. <laughs> well, was that awesome for you? It was, I, you know, was, everything was in slow motion, taking steps up to that microphone to give my speech. Well, I never gave a speech. Never mind. <laughs> I, I just, just like fart into the microphone <laughs> or something. <laughs> I just, I got, I still have it somewhere. I think it's in my jewelry box. I have like a little vocabulary like medal. A little, a little bee pen. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to keep your spelling bee award, you know what I mean? Yeah, man. I'll never forget. So we were talking about Wesley Snipes there a little bit at the beginning because <laughs> he wrote Passenger 57, made made Wesley Snipes an action star. And uh, you got a funny story about your dad, Wesley Snipes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my well, I, I hate to say this because it's going to make him sound terrible to all the listeners. Nobody knows your dad on the show anyway. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> he's not listening or anything. <laughs> Definitely not. He's he's watching um, what, uh, Lizard Lick Toe-In or, or, or what, what's that show with all the rednecks? Well, which one? I mean, yeah. there's Lizard Lick Toe-In, there's, there's Duck Dynasty. Duck, yeah, that's there's, it, Duck Dynasty. There's, yeah. there's all kinds of them. I mean... He, <laughs> we he put on a movie one night. Uh, he used to buy the bootlegs for the for the family to watch, like uh, from from his job. And 
And, uh, he, he, <laughs> bootleg. <laughs> the bootleg DVDs. You know, our listeners know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I'm the, too cheap to spend on this. <laughs> <laughs> there were five bucks each, man. It was a good deal. <laughs> But um, somebody selling them outside. Yo, man, I got bootlegs. Yeah, that, honestly, uh, that's how it went down. Yeah. But um, yeah, we all sit down one night to to watch the movie that he got, and and mom's in the other room, like she's in her office, and and dad's like, uh, "Come in here, baby, we're about to watch the movie." <laughs> she she's like, "What is it? Oh, it's some movie with uh, Wesley Snipes in it, or something like that. Uh, Goodwill Hunting." Wesley Snipes. Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> wait, wait, what? What was that? What was that movie uh, he was in where he's the businessman? And he's like, it has like good or jolly or something like that in the title. <laughs> I don't do. Sure, I don't know. Man. I don't know. Goodwill Hunting was like Ben Affleck, <laughs> yeah. like Robin Williams, and Matt Damon. <laughs> ben Affleck. You, you sure Wesley Snipes wasn't in it? He was, I'm sure, pretty sure Wesley Snipes wasn't in Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> no, I got the wrong movie, man. Anyway, let's just say it's Independence Day, okay? For the, for, <laughs> yeah, for the sake of the joke. Well, the joke's right? already screwed all up now, man. Some, might as well move on. <laughs> well, what was it that your mom said? You're talking about Will Smith. <laughs> oh, is that him? <laughs> I couldn't tell the difference. So this is like every black actor he thought was Wesley Snipes. <laughs> <laughs> There, I mean, he, that's not it's the really, only time he said that. He he literally said uh, Wesley Snipes on like four different movies with four different <laughs> black actors. One of them was Martin Lawrence. <laughs> it's Wesley Snipes, honey. Don't you want to see this Wesley Snipes movie? <laughs> You're right. That does make your dad sound terrible. <laughs> I, I, know, I know I've said this before, but I'm, I'm really glad that your dad is Hank Hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he almost sounds just like him, but it's more of like a southern redneck uh accent versus a Texas accent. Luke is actually Bobby. Just say just say, <laughs> just say propane in your dad's voice. Propane. Yeah. <laughs> propane <laughs> accessories. <laughs> anyway, guys, uh I just wanted to get you guys thoughts on that. That was uh that was an interesting interview. A lot there was again a lot to cover. Yeah, there was a lot to digest. Like uh, again, I'm going to spend my Monday googling all these words and <laughs> places and people and right. You you know, well, first of all, Luke, what do you think, man? I mean, you know, this you asked me a lot about this subject about the Arab-Israeli conflict and what's going on over there. Well, and, I mean, he, I mean, did you learn anything from this? I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, he just kind of um, reiterated some things that you told me about it and you know described it in more detail and did a great job of it by the way um i'll probably still be asking you again sometime soon <laughs> yeah, also, I, have, but, I have more way more questions now than i did before the show especially about the, like the gaza strip occupation and yeah it, especially for someone that is actually has been there on the ground right and been involved with this stuff yeah that's pretty rad i mean i mean it's, it's kind of badass in a way when you really think about yeah, it. He, he is a badass. I just got done watching like 007. Like we, we've we been watching like a, uh, several of them. And I was just thinking about that while he was talking about all that. Well, one of the things that I got out of it was just how, just how damn complex the whole situation is. How you have all these different um, alliances and but it depends on where you are on the ground 
like he was talking about Sinai as opposed to Gaza. Now ISIS and Hamas ally with each other in Sinai, and in Gaza they're kind of at loggerheads with each other, and they kind of fight each other. And you're talking about two places that are right next to each other geographically. I mean, literally, you can go from the Gaza Strip into the Sinai Peninsula. Sinai is that little peninsula that kind of connects um, Asia and Africa. Right. And And it's actually part of Egypt. And at a certain time... The Israelis, he was talking about the Yom Kippur War uh, that he was involved in. That was 1973. And at that time, the Israelis actually occupied the Sinai. And they had occupied it since 1967. It's like, we should do... And once, Sometime I'd love to do like a whole show just about that whole situation. <laughs> I think we could do it. I, I, I think we could do just a whole would, show. That would be, be like four shows, it. dude. Yeah, it really would be. It really would be. Uh couple of things that I really appreciated there was when I asked him about Hamas and about the creation of Hamas. And he said, and whether that was a mistake on the Israelis part. And he said, absolutely. And that, that took me aback. I was real, I was kind of real surprised by that because I was expecting to not get such a clear definitive answer. Um, and also too, just about how the things are on the ground there about the Gaza the Gazan or the Palestinian that came up to him and started talking about how, you know, the what Hamas was doing and how it was basically ruining their lives in in that area. Right. One thing that, that everything he said that reinforced for me was the um the fact that it's it's not the people of a region who are ever at fault for most of the things that you hear yeah. about that are going on. It's the leadership of of that region or the leadership of that um you know, whatever organization it is that's has to be causing the problems here or there, you know. And mm-hmm. and at the same time, then you're going to have millions of people who are just normal, ordinary people that are trying to, you know, would love to just be left alone on their farm to do what they do. and Enjoy their lives or have their business, raise their children. Right, regardless of, you know, nation or religion or, or what have you. He described Yasser Arafat's palace that he just built that he never lived in with 24 karat gold toilets and sinks. And it's like, you know, one of the things that is, that is all across the board, especially in the third world, it happens everywhere. But in the third world, you'll see it a lot more like, um, is corruption, just plain corruption. I mean, just plain people being paid off people, People taking advantage of a situation or advantage of their position. Uh, it, you know, this this happens a lot uh, where my wife is from in Brazil. You know, people just the government there right now. There's a lot of there's a lot of strife there because the government has mm-hmm. just become so corrupt, and this government has re- replaced the former government, the r- more like right oriented government. This is more of a left oriented government. And they're just as corrupt as, as the right as the right was. And well, now their president is about to be impeached down in Brazil. I think that's one of the um one of the important things about our country is that it was founded up by people that knew that that was an issue. And that's why the checks and balances system was was put in place and why it's yeah. so important and needs to be kept. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're holding on by a thread. Right. Well, that's <laughs> that's what we need to be fighting for. Yeah. Corruption exists here for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you look at a place like Chicago, I mean, Chicago is getting worse and worse every day. 
And you it, look it at definitely, certain states in this union, it's there's horrible places. But my point is, if you had a, a singular, like a, a government that was more, not quite, not even a full, it doesn't have to be a dictatorship, but just more, um, you know, here's the party that's in charge. There's nothing to counter them or, or whatever. They're right. they're going to grow to the extremes of corruption because that's just human nature. Right. Exactly. That's about ultimately the, what it comes down to. Leading to the Oregon conflict too with that. Oh yeah, um, the Oregon stuff about the what is this? The I don't have anything in front of me, but the Melier, uh it's like wildlife reserve or something or bird sanctuary that they've yeah, taken over. It, both, yeah. You know what? What's the situation there? Uh, I think you know a little bit more about it than I do. Well, I'm, I mean, I've only read a couple articles about it, but um, you know, it it just uh, it kind of struck me, you know, and it kind of caught my interest because. I I know, and I've heard several other other instances. I know that you have too of like, you know, government agencies bullying people and just kind of just coming in and just taking whatever they want, right. just because they know that they have like the authoritative power and they know the the uh, high profile file people <laughs> can't speak that that uh they can go to to get away with pretty much anything they want, you know, and then you you get this you get this kind of like hatred toward people, you know. Within the agencies, and who who knows why it's going on? But like that's what I feel is going on. Like that they're they're being picked on. Like all of the uh, the landowners, you know, the 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 farm owners. It goes back as far as like the early 1900s. Uh, the people that the the ranch hands, you know, that have passed yeah. the ranches down generation to generation. From what I understand, you have this family named the Hammonds that live on this land mm-hmm. in Oregon, and they. I guess the government, federal government started buying the land, their land up, and they just uh, kind of slowly encroached on where these people already were. Right. So I guess to farm, they had, uh, they started doing like, they started burning certain sections of the land and then the federal government charged them with, with arson. Yeah. And actually sent the guy and his son to jail or to prison and for five or six years and they got out. And then they resentenced them for some odd reason again, and they went. They were supposedly back to go to prison. I have a question, though. Get on the mic. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The yeah. So so they were so so they were um, so they were in this. They were there, and they got sent back to prison. But apparently this 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 Bundy family and this the guy Ammon Bundy who's the son of this Cliven Bundy who had this big standoff like what was it like three years ago or something two three years ago with the federal government yeah, over it's like twenty ten cattle twenty thirteen oh, twenty thirteen twenty fourteen and they had this they had this big standoff over his cattle grazing rights okay well his son apparently has organized this Oregon militia to go in our, our group of militias to go in and occupy this land that yeah. belongs to the federal government. But there, but it seems like, I mean, and you've seen all kinds of stuff on Facebook, like this is a double standard. Cause if we have protesters with guns and then we have the black lives matters protesters, why are they treated differently? And blah, 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 blah. I don't, yeah, that's you know, don't nothing completely unrelated there. and nothing to do with each other whatsoever. Yeah. yeah so, 
Well, it does in the fact in that I think that if any kind of protest like that, if you you if it's if it is that actual uh, transgression by the government, whether it's the cops shooting people or whether there's government taking land, that they should actually be on the same side, but they're actually not. But that's kind of beside the point of what I'm what we're talking about. It's right. it's it, but it's this the whole thing seems like really weirdly unorganized. Like they're asking for snacks. Like somebody took a a photoshopped a picture of the of the don't tread on me flag with the snake and then <laughs> removed don't tread on me and put please send snacks <laughs> underneath. Like it just seems like just it's like are these people really? Uh, it almost seems like they're not. Like organized very well or not serious. I don't know. Yeah. What's your question, Alessa? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can see on, where Luke. I can see where you're coming from because um I mean because it says it says in the articles, you know, that the militia is growing too, that there's more people yeah, coming more people and joining coming the there. cause. So why would they not bring any supplies with them or not have any connections to supplies? Yeah. I don't get that. But I mean I mean I've had I've had Rocky, um, you know, the head of our, the head of the network that we're on. He, he, one thing that you posted about it, he was awfully suspicious about it. And he felt like this whole thing might be like a, like a setup, but I don't know. It just seems like it's just an or- organized rabble of people. Right. What's well, your question, Alyssa? I, I, I think, I think it's, sorry, just real quick. I think from what I got, Scotty's point more was that this wasn't necessarily like a conspiratorial sort of a setup thing, but that they're just a really bad example yeah, and being, seem, and they, being they used as, and being used as an example against what would further, you know, some of our, some of our beliefs. Yeah. They, 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 they seem to be just, like I said, just unorganized. What's your question? Okay. So this is probably really stupid and besides the point, but you said that they are that the government was buying up the land and that they started encroaching like on these people and then the people burn their land like people have done for many years to reinvigorate the soil whatever yeah but who sold them the land did these people sell the government the land yeah i don't know no no no, no, no. that's my question they, so if they sold them the land they're not encroaching the, they bought it just like another private owner could have bought it and if you are burning my land that I paid you for, maybe I don't want my land burned. I'm not saying that it's a bad practice. I'm just saying that if the government bought it from them and gave them the money, then they have to respect the fact that they don't own that land anymore. You can't let somebody encroach on you on your property if you're the one selling them the land. You allowed it. So that's my question. I mean – I, I know that there's a lot more going on, and I don't question. know a lot so, about this, but that question. would be my question. Like, so the, why do you feel like you have the right to now occupy this land and this building and take over a government building when you are the one that sold them the land? Like, you can't – once you sell it and you receive the money, you can't do what you want with the land anymore. It's not yours. You don't own it. So the the two government agencies seized a, a large portion of their land, you know, with backhanded ways, you know, through the legal system, because of course they have the best attorneys and everything else, and they're all using it. Un, they're, you know, they're going under the guise that oh, we need this land for wildlife preservation, 
But in that area, you've got thousands and thousands of acres of like uninhabited land for for these uh what is it what is it geese to to uh to go friggin' graze just, on just, or whatever. Just birds. I mean, it's a bird yeah, sanctuary. It's, it's a bird. It's yeah. a bird. Yeah. And it, to me, it just looks like they're just they're picking on them. That was just the channel they used. Right. To and I'm right. right. And that's why I said this is probably a stupid question because I don't know. I, I'll be the first to admit I don't really know a lot about what's going on. Yeah. Well, so I, I mean, maybe they didn't sell them the land. Maybe they just kind of took they, it. They from lost them. I mean, it to them. Yeah. They the, do everything the else. Took I mean, it from them. they've they've made it so <laughs> that like there's GMOs and you can't like regrow certain right. vegetables. Like the, you, you used to be able to put some toothpicks in a freaking avocado and grow another one, and now you can't. So you so, can't collect rainwater on your own freaking property. Yeah. Raise chickens, right? You can't. I mean, what, what you're getting here is an attack on so agriculture. I that is that's what you're saying? Definitely a possibility that yeah. they would be so arrogant as to think they can just come in and come up with some stupid. Oh well, there's a certain grouse living on this. It, exactly. Property that's exactly what they've done. <laughs> it's one it. of only so many left, and we have to protect it. Like right. And so that, I get that. that's what they've done. But, but I was just concerned, like. Uh, if you sell it, like I didn't know what their stance was, but yeah, the sending them snacks is a little weird. As far as the fire goes, too. Please send snacks. Please far, send snacks. As far camo. as the fire goes, um, they it was an accident that they. I mean, like it it went over on the seized property, you know, that used to belong to their family, but they they tried to start a backburn to stop the fire from going too far. Because if you think about it, like you're going to have all this brush connected with your fields too, and it's, the fire is going to want to keep on going. So they did make an attempt to stop the fire at the property. the The attorneys just jumped all over that as a means right. to like, okay, well, this is our chance yeah. now. Like well, it burned some of our property. Well, like, and I believe that. You know, I mean, that's why I said like I, I guess I need to look more into it. I just and, think it's it's just kind of well. A part of me thinks that it got, got out of control. I think it got point. blown out of proportion because yeah. of the current state of. Where we are with gun control and you know, yeah, all like the, all the memes, like calling them y'all, y'all Qaeda and all that, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, and equate, equating them and, and equating them to terrorists. And, oh yeah, the and people I mean, they're like, I mean, I mean we terrorists. just we just listen to we just listen to Dan Gordon talk about terrorists and what terrorists do, and they I mean they go around and kill people, they terrorize. I mean these people aren't. Terrorizing I, I need to make a meme. Right. Just, they're just sitting there and, and saying they have you're gun- going to listen yes, to us. Yes, they have guns, but trying to say that they're terrorists because they have guns. They have guns to you protect know. themselves. They're not. They haven't shot anybody yet. I, I need. They haven't that, pointed them at anybody, as far as I know. Right. Well, apparently they're all starving because they don't have snacks. <laughs> yeah. so, we mean, should send them some snacks. <laughs> let's put some dollar bills in, in the pot here and let's <laughs> let's send them over some granola. <laughs> Some Powerade. I, I need to make a meme that says uh, "Leave farmers alone," and it's got like that Chris Crocker guy on the left side, and then on the on the right side, it's got like a picture of the Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda, <laughs> and, and it just says "Leave farmers alone." We should send yeah. them like some I mean, apps of steel videos so they can stay. You know, like you know, you don't want them just sitting around eating snacks all day. They got to get up and like do their buns of steel video. <laughs> Ultimately, that's what it comes down to is people that just want to be left alone. I mean, you know, just just really, truly just leave people. If people want to be left alone, if they want to have their what we would say, it's silly religious beliefs or whatever. I mean, whatever it is, just leave them alone. alone. Right. I mean, look at it. 
Looking right. at it on like a smaller scale, like everybody's dog has gotten loose and gone to shit in the neighbor's yard. But you go over and you say, hey, sorry, our burn went over into your, you know, your property. We're sorry. We tried to stop it. Like, you know, just yeah. like treat people like humans and they be nice yeah. to each other. I mean, and just give people the benefit people. of the doubt more it, it, often. It's, it's just, it's it's more than that. Like, it's really heinous between the two of them. Like, they've been going back and forth and just doing, like, really underhanded things, you know. Well, well the, not so much on the farmer's side, but the government's. Like, they even barricaded their land before so that they couldn't even, like, get through their fences to yeah. their own to their own houses. And they had to remove the barricades before they could even yeah, see, get that's, back to their house. It sounds like this up. has been an ongoing war. One Hatfield thing, though, too, like, like, the, like the Hammonds, this family, I think they even told these the Bundys or this, this Ammon Bundy guy they didn't want this to happen, but it happened anyway. So there could be this element of, you know, trying to be in the media still, the, the, the Bundys trying to be relevant, possibly. But... Uh, I think that's it. I think we're going to call it. Uh, two weeks from now, we're going to have on Soraya Askath from the Where Did the Road Go pod, a podcast. And we're going to talk about some real just high weirdness and high UFOs and out-of-body experiences and awesome. kundalini experiences and all kinds of weirdness. <laughs> so Get My brother yeah. in on that one. And also, also, he's a big metal fan. He just did a. Sh- he has another show called Last Exit from the Lost that he uh, plays on his show at uh, radio station in New York, a state where he lives, and he plays nothing but metal. My kind of guest. Yeah, so I think you really would have something <laughs> to really to talk about with this guy. But uh, thank you guys for listening, and we'll be right. We'll be back next week on on Con- Conspiranormal. Luke, take us out with a song. This is the moment that you live for, the culmination of your life. This is the moment when you manifest your dreams yeah. into real life. This is the moment. Can I get a clap? Oh. This is the moment. This is the moment. All right, that's it. <laughs>
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.